Hello, this is Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to episode 69 of the Deep South Dharma podcast, being released Sunday, August 9th. This episode wraps up our mini-series within a series. We are wrapping up the discussion of the three refuges with a focus on the refuge of Sangha. The only announcements that I want to make before we get to that is just to remind you that we are still here for you um, online live um, on Saturday mornings, 10 a.m. Central Time. The Deep South Dharma group meets online and you are welcome to join us. This is the Oxford, uh, formerly known as the Oxford Practice Group. I suppose we'll become that again in the future when we're meeting in person. But right now, we would love to have you join us online. We'll probably always keep some degree of online contact now that we have some regular contact with some of you that don't live here. Also, I want to let you know, I have an additional uh, mindfulness practice group on Wednesdays at 11.30 a.m. It's just a short midday practice. I lead a a different 20-minute meditation each week and then we are done with that call by noon on central time that is so that if people are working you get time to meditate a bit and then time to get a bit to eat before you have to go back into work so just want to let you know that we are here for you live and then of course we're always Uh, available here on the podcast to support you in that way if we can. All right, we'll get to our topic. In the intro, I refer to this episode as the end of a mini-series within a series because this segment on taking the three refuges is partly an elaboration, a tangent, whatever you want to call it, on the subject of um, the sila aspect of the Eightfold Path. So, If you listen regularly, you may remember we've been in the midst of an Eightfold Path series and that these elements of uh, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, that all make up sort of this sila branch of the Eightfold Path has has, um, sort of uh, put out uh, twigs and branches and leaves of these other topics sort of under that general heading of wise action. So the last couple of weeks we've been looking at this practice of taking refuge of um, by which I mean in our own personal lives, personal practice, a deliberate intentional taking of refuge, whether you do that through 
using some sort of tanning, whether you just uh, make some deliberate intentional statement in the privacy of your heart to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. Um, however it is that you do that, I find it to be a useful, beneficial, wise action to take on a regular basis. And sometimes in the West, uh, particularly among those of us who are lay people, when we talk about Sangha, we often give, or I find that I hear people often give a passing mention to sort of capital S Sangha. And then because maybe that's an area we don't feel expert in to move on into a dis discussion of Sangha, little s Sangha, I guess we'd say in a, in a broad sense of noble friendship. So we had a podcast about noble friendship not that many weeks ago. And so if, if that aspect interests you, I would invite you to go take a look at that. This time today, I want us to take a look at capital S Sangha, uh, the community of those who have, um, in the traditional language, gone forth from home into homelessness. Um, the ordained um, monks and nuns of the tradition. So I, I, not because I'm an expert in that, but because I do have some reflections to offer um, from my own experience about what feels beneficial about keeping um, those people and that practice in mind, um, that way of life in mind when taking refuge. So one of the things that is just really valuable um, about the existence of the Sangha in my life is um, that those in the Sangha are a breathing, are breathing, walking examples that there is another way to live. And, you know, I um, have certain commitments that I've made in my life and um, ways of, of living, ways of being that I live out as a lay person, but there is something about having, uh, keeping the Sangha in mind and heart and in my awareness that allows me a sense of permission to be, uh, to be creative about uh, ways of living, modes of being. That um, just reminds me that the sort of what, what many of us think of as sort of the mainstream way of being is really just one way of being and is not the only way to do things. Um, so that in itself can be really um, valuable. And then also the idea just to be able to watch people living in trust in the goodness of human nature. Um, and what I mean by that is um, watching how, how say for instance, you have these monks and nuns that live on, live on alms food, live on the donations of food, donations of, of other requisites needed for um, just basic survival, basic living. And 
the watching the natural movement of generosity that people feel when they can see that someone is not out to exploit them. So, you know, in the Theravada tradition and this, particularly in the Thai forest tradition, um, there is this real uh, focus on, for the monks and nuns on being, on being worthy of the um, resources that are being given to them by the lay people. And um, there is this, um, this deliberately mutual relationship that the Buddha set up so that, um, that ideally the monks and nuns are able to rely on the lay people for the basic requisites of living in human form which, you know, one, one way you could think of it sort of playfully is, okay, the lay people sort of, their, their focus is on obtaining those things, creating those things, growing those things. And then um, they are in this mutual relationship um, in which they're able to rely on the guidance and teaching of the Sangha, the Sangha that specializes in practice, in study, in guidance, and offers it um, and that's their sort of area of specialty that they offer. So it's also it's also helpful to know, uh, maybe to you, that that the reason that there are just hundreds of training rules for monks and nuns to adhere to, to become aware of, to use as daily practices. Um, is partly for the degree of awareness required um, is is a good training in itself. But also, um, my understanding from one of my teachers is that the the list grew and grew over the years as the Buddha saw things developing, um, um, and and his intention was always to be sure that the lay people were not taken advantage of or did not experience taking advantage of. And so, for instance, the um, where the monks and nuns don't eat after after the midday meal, um, that 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 means that the lay people who feed them don't have to spend all day long feeding them. Right. That they they make their offerings in the morning or mid morning. But that, um, but that then they can go on with the business of feeding their own families and their own um, communities. And there's that sense that um, also that that although um, intensive ongoing meditation does burn a lot of energy, there also is this awareness that when there's not an overabundance of physical exertion, um, that that late evening meal is not required for, for good health. In, in the, uh, the chanting, um, the, the line that always occurs to me is, uh, refers, describes the Sangha as the Buddhist disciples who have practiced well. And so part of what that means is that when I take refuge in the Sangha, this is, you know, for me personally, what I what I 
am taking refuge in is this description, the Buddha's disciples who have practiced well. So um, I am, it is not, um, it is not up to me to defend or explain the actions of those who have misused their position um, or that sort of thing. One of the things that I appreciate, I'm working my way through um, one of the Ajahn Shah biographies. And one of the things that, that really comes forward in that is, is how careful he was in keeping his precepts because, um, because it was his very clear awareness that um, if a monk um, breaks one of his precepts, even if no one else knows, the moment it happens, he is no longer a monk. And so um, and this that specifically refers to, um, to precepts around celibacy. And so, and so that, that sense of, yes, taking refuge in disciples who are practicing well, um, whether I may know individually who they are or not, um, but, but in the understanding and in the ability to see that there are people who are living in such a manner that is supportive of others and is dedicated to having as little impact in a harmful way as possible in this world while maximizing um, their potential for good. Not only in this world, but in maximizing the potential for good for helping people um, get free of the suffering of this world. And then there's the issue of what you may choose to do to offer support. You know, those of us who don't happen to live in a place where we have monks or nuns, you know, coming, coming down our road for alms food, we can make decisions about how we might want to support the Sangha. Um, and first of all, I would suggest that um, it might be good to know why you might want to. And, you know, one is that having that sense, uh, well, for me, for one thing, I enjoy supporting my teacher's retreat center and her other projects that support women in the Sangha. So very often, um, the world being what it is, um, often the nuns struggle or can struggle to um, receive as much public awareness and as much uh, material support um, as the as the monks do. So I like to be sure that some of my resources um, support um, the the women who are living the homeless life in the sangha. But I also find that contributing to the welfare and support of, you know, a guiding, mature, non-exploitive male energy is very healing. And so I also like to offer support to the bhikkhus um, in, in whatever modest way I can. And you can also take a look at 
if there are, you know, if you want to support, if you want to support one of the monasteries, if you want to support um, a retreat center such as Heartwood that my teacher has, um, if you want to, um, or if you want to support other projects, for instance, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, as I've mentioned here before, has Buddhist Global Relief, which for a number of years now has done um, such important work in addressing hunger in the world. And that need is, is rapidly increasing, um, not only because of COVID and environmental injustice, but just the, all of, really all of just the, the unfortunate synergy of all of that occurring. And so um, that organization is, is a way that you can support a project that a particular um, bhikkhu or nun has going on that, that feels close to your own heart, that feels, um, that feels like a concern that um, arises for you um, regularly enough that, that, that you have that sense that, oh, I need to be, I don't need to be thinking about who else needs to be doing something about this, but what action do I want to take to, to do something about this? So there is that uh, benefit in terms of your own peace of mind, in terms of karmic imprint, and also when offering support in this way, there is the, the sense of interconnection um, between lay people and, and the Sangha becomes very real when, and even though you may not know those folks personally, they may never know my name, and, but, but here we have this opportunity even in this, even in this modern world, of having this mutually beneficial, um, supportive relationship, and that is that is really a deep uh, practice, um, at least for me in my ongoing uh, development of the path. Let's just give ourselves a minute to let that settle.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma Podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always, feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.